Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Morning, church. It is good to see you all today, and uh, I just want to say I'm so thankful for each one of you. I am uh, so glad that you're here, and uh, it's good to be together this morning. Um, Over the last nine months, quick refresher, Antioch has joined with millions of other Christian churches around the world in walking through the seasons of the church calendar and uh, ordering our worship around this calendar is a practice that kind of serves as a way to order our lives around the story of Christ and his kingdom, or in other words, the story of the gospel. And so, uh, real quick, as a refresher, we started uh, just after Thanksgiving last year in the season of Advent, which is all about the anticipation of Christ. And then we celebrate Christmas, which is all about the incarnation of Christ. Uh, Then we move into Epiphany, uh, which is about the revelation, uh, the revealing of Christ. And then sometime around February or March each year, we enter into the season of Lent, which ultimately culminates with the suffering and crucifixion of Christ. Uh, Then we celebrate Easter, which is about the resurrection of Christ. And then towards the end of the spring, end of May, is Pentecost, when we celebrate the gift of the Holy Spirit and the ascension of Christ. And so the top half of the calendar, as you can see, uh, happens kind of in the winter and the spring each calendar year, and then follows the story of Jesus, Advent, through Pentecost. And then the bottom half of the calendar, uh, which happens in the summer and fall each year, is known as ordinary time, because everything's just so ordinary in the world right now. It just makes sense. Um, Now, this year uh, at Antioch, in addition to following the church calendar, we've also been doing another practice that's designed to help Christian congregations um, go deeper into the life of Jesus and his church. And the tool we've been using is called the lectionary. Uh, The lectionary is essentially a Bible reading plan or a three-year cycle of scripture readings that's designed to bring the church through the great narrative of scripture without being constrained by the personal preferences of the preacher. And so instead of doing preaching series through various books of the Bible or topical series like we've done in years past, for the last nine months, um, and most of it was our digital liturgies, so I forgive you if this doesn't sound that familiar, um, we've been following the lectionary, specifically the revised common lectionary to center our worship and community in the words of God. We want the scripture to be central to the gathering of God's people. And so once again today, our passage from the Song of Songs comes from the lectionary. And I'll just say up front, this is one of the great things about the lectionary is that it gets us to engage parts of the Bible that we typically wouldn't choose to. It's good for me and it's good for you guys. So, um, but what I want to tell you before we dive in is that starting next week, we're going to use the rest of ordinary time this year 
to focus our Sunday morning teachings on some specific things that we feel we've been called to uh, as Antioch. And so starting with Ken being with us next week, we're going to take a break from the lectionary for the next three months, and we're going to use that time to try to hear from God and gain some clarity and some inspiration around the unique vision and mission that he's given us uh, as a church. So I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, Our team is going to be working on this together. We've got some really great, amazing guest speakers coming in. Um, I think it's going to be a wonderful fall. So that's what's coming up starting next week. So uh, today, our Old Testament reading is from a book of the Bible called the Song of Songs, or also sometimes called the Song of Solomon. And um, this is actually the only place in the entire three-year cycle of the lectionary that Song of Songs shows up. And so I want to spend the first part of our time kind of just giving you a brief overview of what this book of the Bible uh, is all about. In short, the Song of Songs is about love. Um, It's an ancient Hebrew love poem, and it's full of passionate, sensual, borderline erotic language and imagery that seeks to explore the depths of human love. And specifically, in this poem, it's the love between a young Hebrew maiden and her handsome shepherd lover. So there's a couple things that make Song of Songs a unique book of the Bible. Um, The first is that it's the only book in the Bible to have all of its content in the form of dialogue. So every word in this book is put in the mouths of its characters. There's no narrator. Um, It's a conversation primarily between this young woman and the man that she loves uh, and occasionally the voices of several of their friends. So the whole book is 117 verses of this young couple gushing over one another. And it's worth noting that about 70% of those words are spoken by the woman. I'm not making any points here. It's just an observation. Any resemblance to your marriage is purely coincidental. But um, So that's the first interesting thing about Song of Songs. The second is that along with the book of Esther, Song of Songs is one of the only two books in the Bible that never mentions God. Um, so right in the middle of our Bible, between Ecclesiastes and Isaiah, is this ancient, semi-erotic Hebrew love poem that never mentions God, which is pretty strange. Which is why for thousands of years, both Jewish and Christian readers have had a hard time knowing exactly what to do with this book of the Bible. Like, why is it even included in the scripture? How should we interpret it? Is it just a romantic poem, or is there some deeper meaning that we're supposed to see. Um, If you've engaged this book at all, you'll probably be familiar with the most common approach, both in Jewish and Christian traditions, and that is to read the Song of Songs as an allegory, to see that it's using the passion of these two young lovers to paint a picture of the love between God and his people. So Jewish readers have looked at it as a description of the love between Yahweh and his covenant people, the nation of Israel, and Christian readers have looked at it as uh, an allegory of the love between Christ and his bride, uh, which is the church. 
Um, so both of these interpretations have long traditions, and there's a lot that can be gleaned um, <clears throat> by reading the book that way. But I want to argue that at its most basic level, the Song of Songs is simply a book about love. It's an exploration and a celebration of the nature of this thing called love. Which is why there's always been confusion about why it's in the Bible. As I was studying this week, I came across one particularly grumpy Hebrew scholar from the 1920s who said, the Song of Songs is purely secular in character with no apparent theological, religious, or moral attributes. God never once appears in it. He's a Bible commentator. So um, what many Bible readers have come to find is that even though this book never mentions God by name, that doesn't mean it has no theological value. So my guy Eugene Peterson writes, Song of Songs functions as a theological document by taking up the theme of saving love, the kind of love that rescues from non-being and creates in-being relationship and exploring in exuberant detail its daily intimacies. So what Peterson's saying is that by exploring and celebrating the nature of love, the Song of Songs is inviting us to consider that maybe the reason every single person who's ever lived has this deep, insatiable desire to know and to be known intimately is that there's this thing called love at the center of the universe that ties us all together. There's a book about love. Song of Songs says that love is better than wine and stronger than death. It says that love is physical and sensual, but it's also transcendent and mysterious. Because of its power and intensity, love can be beautiful and life-giving, or it can also be dangerous and destructive. And so this is why the book of Song of Songs is included in the section of the Bible that we refer to as wisdom literature. If you think about all the parts of human experience that would fall under the category of living well, I think all of us would put love, relationships, marriage, those sorts of things in that category. They would make all of our lists of really important things to learn about if you're going to live well. So love, relationships, marriage, these are some of the most basic human experiences, which is why we shouldn't be surprised to find an entire book of the Bible devoted to these topics. So in summary, Old Testament scholar Tremper Longman says it like this, God in his wisdom has spoken through the poet of the song to both encourage and warn us about the unquenchable power, and the power of love and desire. The song celebrates the joy of physical touch, the exhilaration of exotic scent, the sweet sound of a lover's voice, and the taste of another's lips. The song is divine affirmation of love and an acknowledgement of the pain that often accompanies it. So that's what the Song of Songs is all about. I'm guessing it's been a while since you sat down and read it. And uh, that's okay, but I'd encourage you this week, in light of uh, all that, to take 10 minutes and uh, sit down and read through this ancient Hebrew love poem. It really is 
uh, thing of beauty. So our passage today picks up in chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. And uh, I want to specifically draw attention to two facets of love that we see in this part of the poem. Two facets of love that we see in this part of the poem. And that is the difficulty of intimacy and the hope of consummation. So, um, first, the difficulty of in- intimacy. In this passage, uh, which Fred read so well, it really is spoken by the female character in, in the poem. And uh, it use- she uses the metaphor of the changing of seasons, specifically the changing from winter to spring, to describe what's happening within her as she anticipates seeing her man. So look at like verse 11. See, the winter is past. The rains are over and gone. Flowers appear on earth. The season of singing has come. And so the general mood of this part of the poem is one that's ecstatic with anticipation. She Uh, She's hopeful and anticipatory, looking forward to seeing her guy. But she also references in the midst of it all the fact that love doesn't always feel that way. She's heading into the spring, but she's been in the winter. Because love isn't always blossoms and butterflies. Sometimes it's rain and darkness. She's been separated from the man that she loves, and she reminds us that painful moments of unfulfilled longing are integral to the nature of relationships. Let me say that again, because this is a recurring theme throughout the song. Painful moments of unfulfilled longing are integral to the nature of relationships. Loving and searching are recurring themes all through this poem. And we've all experienced this in our lives in one way or another. When it comes to our human relationships, we know what it's like when our significant other or our spouse, when we're apart from each other for an extended period of time, but also sometimes we miss our parents or our kids or our siblings, or our friends. We all know that feeling of being separated from the ones that we love. And obviously that's been one of the most painful parts about this whole pandemic. All around the world, people separated from the the ones that they love and care most about. Unable to spend time with each other. And we know that FaceTime and Zoom never will fulfill the longing we have to actually be together. And so we all know this feeling, the difficulty of intimacy when it comes to human relationships. But I would argue that if this is true when it comes to our relationships with other people, it's going to be even more true when it comes to our relationship with God. And many of us also know what that feels like, to go extended periods of time feeling distant from God, feeling separated from him, disconnected from him. And we know from reading the saints of old that this experience isn't unique to us modern-day Christians. St. John of the Cross famously coined the term the dark night of the soul to talk about 
those days, weeks, months, years, even decades, where we go without ever sensing God's presence or hearing his voice or feeling his love. I know as your pastor that many of you have spent a lot of time there. I know that some of you are there right now and you have been for a while. I know what that feels like when even though it's summer outside, it's still winter in our souls. I've been there myself and it's no fun. But what the Song of Songs teaches us is that the difficulty of intimacy or the unfulfilled longing to be close to the one we love, its very presence is actually a sign that we are on the path towards true love. Here's what I mean. Lots of Christians that I've talked to when they're going through this season of darkness or silence where God's presence feels more like absence, they assume that that means they're doing something wrong. That they ought to be trying harder or living differently or that somehow there's something wrong with them and their faith because they've gotten off track and it seems like everybody around them is more connected to God, enjoying God more than they are. And so we start to wonder, like, maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe there's something wrong with my faith or maybe I don't have faith. Maybe I never did. Maybe this whole thing is just a sham or a hoax or a myth or something because it doesn't seem to be working. But that's not actually the way the Bible talks about unfulfilled desire. In the Bible, even in the midst of some of the most significant, miraculous, mind-blowing encounters between humanity and God, there's always been doubt mixed in. So over the years, I've found a helpful picture in the twist at the end of the sixth sense. It's like a 20-year-old movie. I'm going to spoil it for you. If you haven't seen it, that's your fault. The twist comes when the main character, this little boy, Cole Sear, reveals that he sees dead people. He says they're walking around like regular people. They don't see each other. They only see what they want to see. They don't know they're dead. So here's the gospel according to M. Night Shyamalan. <laughs> dead people don't know they're dead. Which means if you think you're dead, if you feel dead, if you're worried that you might be dead, then that means you're not. <laughs> if you were actually dead, you wouldn't know it. You wouldn't feel dead, you wouldn't feel anything. So as a pastor, when people come to me with struggles in their faith, when they're wrestling with doubt, when they've gone months or years without feeling the presence of God, they're worried that there's something wrong with them, that they're doing it wrong, that their faith is dead, that maybe they never knew God at all, or maybe there was never a God to know. 
And I'm here to tell you that if you feel dead, that's the first sign that you're very much alive. Now, I realize it takes a very special person to take a beautiful love poem about spring and flowers and end up talking about dead people. I apologize, I blame COVID. But I want to make sure that we know there's more than ecstasy and flutters of excitement when it comes to love. That there's never spring without winter. So the song's full of this ecstatic anticipation, and it's also full of the pain of unfulfilled longing. And that's central to the nature of this thing called love. Finally, the hope of consummation. In verse 8, she says, Listen, my beloved, look, here he comes, leaping across the mountains, bounding over hills. In this passage and in several other places throughout the song, we see these intimate, romantic, sensual metaphors used to describe this longing for relationship and nearness. If you think through the story of the Bible, you find that these same kinds of metaphors are often used in a negative sense to describe humanity's failure to be faithful to God. If you think through the message that the prophets bring confronting Israel for leaving or breaking covenant with Yahweh and instead worshiping other gods, the prophets confront them for adultery or harlotry as a nation, stepping out or cheating on God, their covenant lover. And so throughout the Bible, sexual metaphors for the relationship between God and his people are generally framed in a negative sense, but in the Song of Songs, it's one of the few places in Scripture that actually does the opposite for us. It uses the language of this intimate, romantic relationship to describe the beauty and the intimacy and the all-encompassing, holistic nature of the love that God calls his people to in salvation. So we often use the word consummation to describe what happens to a marriage on the wedding night. But the Bible uses that same term to describe what happens to the world we live in when Christ returns. The consummation of all things. And just like in the beginning of the story, in Genesis 1 and 2, where God creates this world that's marked by peace and shalom and wholeness and unity, right, flourishing relationships between God and humanity, humans and one another, humans and ourselves, humans and the rest of creation, in many ways, the Song of Songs is a deep exploration of what that world feels like when things are as they ought to be. Song of Songs is an incredibly green book, if you will. There's dozens of different plants and animals named specifically, calling all of creation into this beautiful vision of consummation. 
But in verse 9, she says, My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. Now, don't go stalker with this image. It's more like I caught a glimpse of the one I love, but I can't see him perfectly yet. He's still in the distance or he's still behind the lattice. I can make out his form, but I can't see him clearly. It's like he's already here, but he's still on his way. And all of a sudden, we start to catch this picture of the nature of God's kingdom of love that has come to us in Christ, but is still coming. The already, not yet. Which is why we get to enjoy moments and foretastes of this consummation of all things in the beauty and tenderness of a marriage relationship and in the other love relationships between us and other humans and the rest of creation. We get tastes of it, but it's still coming. This passage ends in verse 13. Arise, come, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. But then it ends. It ends with an invitation. And if you go to the very end of the book, at the end of chapter 8, it says basically the same thing. Come away, my beloved. Be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the spice-laced mountains. But that's it. There is no resolution in this poem. There is no definitive happy ending. There is no predetermined outcome. Which is a lot like love. And specifically the love of God that's been shown to us in Christ is a love that has no end. Some of us are here today in difficult seasons in regards to the relationships that matter most. Maybe marriage is rough at the moment. And you're looking at each other going, really? We're going to do this the next 50 years? Guess what? It's not over yet. Love has no end. The poem goes on. The story continues. All of our disnified understandings of how these stories go haven't served us well when the whole story is about pursuit, but then it ends with they lived happily ever after. It feels like an ending, but we know that's just the beginning. And then what? And then what? So take heart. Don't give up. Those of you that are struggling in relationships, marriage or otherwise, it's not over yet. Don't give up hope. The admonitions of the beloved in verses 8 and 9 to listen, to look, to watch, to pay attention. They sound really similar to the way Jesus told his disciples to be on the lookout for his return. 
different places in the scripture, places like Mark 13, Jesus is talking about the end of the day when he comes to make all things new. And he says, at that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And he says, when you see that happening, know that he is near right at the door. And so our text today, this ancient, semi-erratic Hebrew love poem actually fills us with an eschatological hope. This hope of the consummation of all things, the renewed expectation that one day Christ is coming. We can see him through the lattice, but one day we will see him full. So it's interesting if you look at the ending of our poem today or the ending of Song of Songs and then you look at the way that the Bible itself ends, you can't help but notice the similarities. If you go to the last few verses of the last chapter of the last book of the Bible, we hear Jesus say this, that I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. Now listen, the spirit and the bride say come, and let the one who hears say come. Let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life. In verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon, and the church together says amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Linda's going to come and lead us to the table this morning as an opportunity to share in the most intimate exchange and encounter with God that he's offered to us.